you don't get to define yourself sounds like bad news. But heard by an acknowledged sinner, you don't have to define yourself is wonderful, freeing, and comforting news. (laughs) Thank God. Welcome to the Stand Firm Podcast. I'm Nick Lannon of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky, here as usual with Matt Kennedy of the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd in Binghamton, New York, and J.D. Koch of Christ Anglican Church in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. How are you guys doing today? Wonderful. Yeah, doing great, Nick. It's been a wild week online for you Kennedys, Matt. How are things over at Internet Troll HQ? <laughs> Great. It's been. It's actually. I'm not. I'm not unused to this. This is something that is part of our. Been part of our lives for the last twelve years, thirteen years. He says strong things on the internet. <laughs> we, we are. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I, I will say. I mean, the, the number of trolls that have been sent our way by uh, Kristen Dumay. Well, I'm, she didn't mean to, of course. Um, but. It's been it's been pretty pretty thick troll thick. So I've well, that I've, book I've blocked more people than I've ever blocked before. It's like we said in our discussion of it, though. The book is really a um, cultural uh, Christian cultural phenomenon. It's been uh, and in a year of diagnostic um, or sort of revelatory things to come out to sort of expose what side of all sorts of questions one is on this book is is in that line because you could essentially i think you could make a lot of assumptions correctly about uh, a person you know maybe even like down to what their car um type car they drive uh how they voted um you know just based upon their reaction to that book um and i think you know, so be it. I mean, like we talked about on the podcast too, I think that it's the clearer we can be um, and as loving and as as gracious as we can in the midst of those disagreements, the better. Because, you know, we have spent a long time um, in uh, brackish or murky water and it's much, it's much uh, more freeing to be um, to be a place where it's, it's clear, you know, is what we believe is what we stand for. This is, um, you know, we're holding these, these, um, these convictions with as much as first Peter says, uh, gentleness and humility as we can, we're open for correction, but, uh, we're also charged with teaching, preaching and shepherding. And so, um, at some point you have to make a decision on some of these questions and we have, and so I'm grateful for it. I mean, Liza and I talk about it all the time that, um, you know, for me, I became a father and a rector in a three month period. And it was like a light went off um, or light went on, excuse me, and changed everything about what my actual responsibilities were. And that was what, what was that, Nick, eight years ago. And it's been an eight year journey, uh, which um, has brought us to a sound repudiation of Jesus and John Wayne <laughs> without any, without any fear of retribution or, or shame or scorn. Yeah, um, not, not to get this, you know, cause we're not, we haven't actually talked about the stuff we're talking, we're supposed to talk about yet, but I will say, you know, those of us who have been in the Episcopal church, um, we are used to people talking in the very same ways that these quote unquote evangelical influencers are talking and we know where it goes. You know, the, 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 the average Episcopal cleric spoke about race and sexuality exactly the way Dumay does, and increasingly, um, uh, what's her name? Beth Moore, yeah. Oh, yeah, Increasingly yeah. how she's talking about these things. Um, we're used to, we're, we've heard that, and we know where it ends. Yeah, and, and to our um, shame, we believed them uh, initially. Right, you know, right. And I think them. that's where a lot of the new new clergy in the ACMA are, right? They, 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 they believe them. 
and and they buy. And I think and I think they actually changed. I mean, I think that there was a trajectory. I mean, I was talking to someone about this the other day that, you know, that that even in the context of um, well, Trinity School for Ministry, where I'm on the board, um, you know, the even the the job description or the 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 type of a professor that you may have uh, thought you needed to be even five years ago has changed. You know, I mean, it's been such a uh, such a, a sea change, and I think. You know, there's a there's an amount of, there's certain grace I can give to people who are in the process of this well this giant sea change. But at the right. same time, I think that there's too little appreciation for for the people that have already seen it uh, play out once. You know, I yeah. think, and I mean, and that's you know, I mean, that's sound get off my lawn, sound like an old man, but uh, <laughs> but you know, there's. Uh, there was a lot of uh, sometimes sometimes lawns shouldn't be tread on. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's, yeah, he says strong things on the internet and right. wants you off his lawn. That's right. <laughs> well, speaking of seeking clearer waters and clarity on these issues, the ACNA and the church as a whole are continuing to wrestle with these ideas that have been called woke, for lack of a better word, racial justice, same-sex attraction, and identity as a whole are the most common flashpoints in this conversation, and many clergy are discerning exactly how to talk to their churches about these issues, me included. Certainly the world is talking about them all the time. Our kids are being catechized by things like the so-called Jedi curricula, which I only just heard about the other day, thanks to you, JD. Schools focusing their education efforts on justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion, J-E-D-I. Uh, now, last week, coincidentally, looking for their help, I sent Matt and JD the outline of a class that I'm planning to do here in Louisville on identity, sexuality, and justice. And we thought it might be interesting to talk through here on the pod what such a class should include. How should we address these issues from a biblical perspective? What does God say, for instance, about equity and inclusion? How can we prepare our parishioners for what they're going to meet out in the world? We thought that it would not only help us get our thoughts organized, but potentially help other leaders teach on these issues and even help lay people have something to say to a world that is so energized about these ideas right now. So as long as this week goes okay, that's what we're going to do. Podcast on each of those issues, identity today, sexuality next week, and justice two weeks from now. So let's get right into our identity discussion. I thought a good place to start might be with a discussion of how we know things at all. Do we search out and discern the meaning already extant in the world, or are we able to give the raw materials of the world whatever meaning we want? In other words, is truth something we find, or is truth something that we give? Is that where you guys would start such a discussion? Yeah, I would. I mean, I think I think that's the key the key distinction. Um, the the present understanding of reality is I look within me, myself, and we talked about this many times in this podcast. I look within, um, I find out what I'm attracted to, what I would like to do, where, where, where my desires lead me, and that's the given. That's that's the given. If you're a Christian, you might even say that's that's from God, uh, or I'm using Christian there in scare quotes. Um, you might say that's from God, so I, I then live out my reality my truth right and and that's so if i find that i'm attracted to other men um that's who god made me to be because i've, I've discerned that within myself and or if i find out that i'm actually a woman you know i've got a beard and everything but you know that's what my inner self tells me um then i then i go and live in accordance with that and that identity 
that I have discerned through my own dispositions, predilections, desires. Right. So there's this kind of subjective idea of who I am that I determine. And I might put an objective gloss over it by saying, well, this, there was, that's what, the reason I've discerned that is because that's what God put in there. That's the Imago Dei or whatever it might be. Um, versus, you know, that God made, in the beginning made male and female, his word, the scriptures reveal what what nature should be, what a human being should be, and and so where I find myself in con in, in contradistinction from that, that means that I need to confess, Lord, I'm not what I ought to be. Help me, forgive me, you know, make me remake me, all that. So there's a, there's the, the divide is between the objective. The, the truly objective revelation of who the self is and what reality is that is that is given to us externally by by scripture and by creation too in some sense and and then the verse versus the internal subjective feeling of, of who I am that is then people will say well that's from God you know, my, my feelings about who I am are from God and, and so that's only if they're willing to admit a belief in God. Right, right, right. yeah, right. Well, that is, yeah, I mean, I think this is exactly why at the heart of all these debates about identity is really a theological question, you know, belief or unbelief, because yeah. you're fundamentally, and it goes back to the garden, you're fundamentally arguing if you're God or if there is a God outside of you. Um, and so I think this is why it's, it's, it's incumbent upon Christian ministers to articulate exactly what's at stake in these quote-unquote identity debates, because it's not that God has given us an exhaustive list of exactly what it means to be a man or a woman or a father or a wife or, or a mother or a, a child, you know, and all these various identities, but he's given us um, sufficient, sufficient guidance to understand that those in fact are um, created realities that are gifts of his that of course have been marred by the fall but nevertheless in redemption we see the the beginnings of the first fruit of the restoration of these things you know which is why the fundamental relationship you know getting back to the, the sort of identity issues is between god and man god and humanity you know so once that is reconciled then the the fruits of that reconciliation begin to to spill out into our various relationships which you can even see echoed in the ten commandments you know, first or for children begin to be reconciled to their parents, you know, um, ideally, you know, you're, you're reconciled to your spouse and, and through not committing adultery, you're, you're reconciled to the world um, without, you know, breaking the ninth commandment, the 10th commandment. I mean, you're beginning to, to see, however, imperfectly, the restoration of that broken relationship, which is, in fact, the grounding of our identity. And I think that's why, um, you know, I found it very interesting to look at the um, the broken realities of these various identities that we are given, and then the hopeful sort of pedagogical or the teaching function of of encouraging uh, restoration. You know, beginning with with your relationship with God. You know, that's your first identity. Is now you're a redeemed, adopted, um, you know, former, um, formerly lost, now found um, child and heir. And then, you know, to what extent are you in various other relationships that you have seen marred by sin and now given back to you by God. And so that's where, you know, if you're teaching, teaching children, you begin to, to talk about the father, good fatherhood of God, who gave you these parents who, um, you know, who are responsible for you the way that the good father uh, is responsible for us, you know, who you, we do these catechisms that, you know, what is to glorify God is to listen to him. Why 
do we listen to him because he loves us and created us? You know, you could go down the list. And then of course, if you have, you know, you have newlyweds, you talk about how the relationship between men and women was broken and this new identity of husband and wife is something God gives back to the world as a model of the church and his son, you know, and then you go just down the list of things. And I think, um, you know, what we're offering people is an alternative um, soundtrack to their lives, you know, an alternative um, language uh, to speak about who they are and who God is. And it's, it's, it's all encompassing, which is why to sort of adopt quote unquote parts of um, uh, this identity language into a Christian framework is almost impossible because um, you're, you're dealing with, with two different worlds, you know? So for instance, like the, the quote unquote sexual identity um, language that people use, you know, that are the sexual minorities. We will talk about this next week, but that's, that's not a category given to us by God. There's no identity marker that is defined by our sexual desires. Um, You know, we, we are sexual beings, who happen to be men and women, and the only uh, faithful God-glorifying exercise of that sexuality is within the confines of marriage. So that's how we talk about, you know, our quote-unquote sexual identity. But to use that as an identity uh, is not something that I believe we're given to as Christians to, to, to speak about. I mean, just and go down the list of things, you know, the list of identities that people claim for themselves um, need to be held up for the Christian over against what the Bible says about people. And that needs to be our guide about when we talk about about human identity. Seems like we're talking on two fronts, sort of. There's the the one main front which you brought up a second ago, which is: is there a God, and did he has he spoken? And if the answer to that is yes, then of course, uh, what becomes of primary importance is figuring out what he has said and um, how to live our lives under the authority of whatever that is. The second one is sort of the source of where we find truth that seems to be shifting or has, well, shifted, as you said, since the garden, but culturally has shifted in a more permanent way from the external to the internal, from some observable truth to how you feel. There is a wonderful example that um, Carl Truman uses in his uh, the rise and triumph of the modern self when he talks about uh, the job satisfaction. And he, mm-hmm. he talks about how his grandfather would have, if he even could have <laughs> answered a question about job satisfaction, which Carl Truman wonders if he even would have understood the question. But if he had, he would have answered in terms of, do I have a job that provides financial stability for me to feed my family right. or to put shoes on my children's feet? Whereas when Carl Truman biblically faithful Christian though he is, when he hears that question about job satisfaction, his instinct is to talk about his feelings, how how much pleasure teaching provides for him, the, the sense of personal fulfillment he feels when a student really learns about a new idea. And this is a shift from truth being something external to truth being something internal. And it seems to me that this is a big part of the problem. I mean, I wouldn't even necessarily say it's something uh, that Christianity, it's the Christianity has a, a monopoly on because I mean, you, I don't think that the average you know, Roman in the first century would have looked within himself to decide whether he's a man or a woman. That's, that's right. Right. I mean, this is this is this is basically kind of natural or common grace kind of uh, understanding of the cell, which is generally, you know, and in, in, in historically. 
when non-Christian societies, people would look to the gods or they look to their culture or whatever it might, or their community or might, might be, but but they're, they're, everyone was everyone was sexed from the time they were, they were you know infants. You knew what you you know you know you were treated like a boy or a girl, a, right. a male or a male or a female. Um, now there were there are little, there are ancient movements you can look back in into and say okay well this is this is the antecedent to what we're looking at today and I think one of the big ones that feeds into what we're or that at least to it was was present in the ancient world in the first second late first second third centuries is Gnosticism that's that's the the uh, part of that uh, part of that whole framework and it, it's very complicated Gnosticism is a really complicated system but key to it is that you know really the, the the reality of who you are is 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 the spark of life um the spirit self um within and you know you find gnostic gurus can, who can help you try and who, who can help you figure that out um figure out your true spirit self but getting in touch with that is the key to your release key to your liberation key to your freedom that was all there in like second third centuries sure well, there's a wonderful article written by a professor out at um, uh, Westminster West uh, called, his name's Peter Jones, and it was pretty seminal in my thinking along these lines from an early, for 20 years now, I guess, and the title of the article is um, Androgyny and Pagan Spirituality, and he basically categorizes, he does, he did all the research for us, but he goes back through antiquity and sees how when you have the the, when paganism is defined as a um, what they would say today, even as a, a destruction of the binary, you know, the binary being uh, the creator creature distinction, right, um, which is then mirrored in the male female distinction. So when paganism denies creator creature distinction and actually sees the creator as part of the creature, you know, we're all one, we're all part of the cosmic um, soup, as it were. Well, then the highest ideal, and there's pictures of this going back millennia. In those spiritualities are the and androgyne, so it's the it's the the blending of the man and woman, sort of the the amorphous sort of non non gendered reality, because that becomes the highest vision of this pagan ideal, and so it's not surprising. When Christianity confronts cultures like that, well, that is is when it when it when it supersedes cultures like that, then it uh, does away with that is the highest ideal, and the highest ideal becomes some semblance of the union of men and women, right? Um, because that becomes the image of God on earth. But when we see Christianity receding, what is it replaced with? Not some, um, you know, like what some people thought was going to be just uh, um, the the various agnostic fronts. You know, we're going to be uh, competing for. Uh, ascendancy but uh just a ascendancy of that old pagan ideal and so that's why when you see in sort of the, the broader culture i mean who are the people who are um sort of the mystics and the sages of the world are the people who are well now we would say genderqueer and there is a seeming kind of mystery and mysticism around some of these people that is that is nothing less than than religious um you know i mean you think of some of the people like um who's that woman that ann wrote the book about or wrote the uh uh, did an article on um, Glennon Doyle, yeah, you know, who who became you know left her husband or, or some her marriage fell apart and she became a lesbian and now she's like a internet guru for um, for for thousands hundreds of thousands of Twitter followers or something and it's it's a reflection yeah. of where we find our our new sense of heightened identity like where's the ideal idealized human and 
And so, you know, I think that we have to, to realize, as Paul says, that we're not in just a battle of flesh and blood, but of spirits and princes and principalities of the air. And I think that there's a spiritual component to the question of identity that can't be, that has to be appreciated at a very deep level for, particularly for the Christian minister, because, you know, we're not just um, trying to convince people of these things, but we're prayer, prayerfully um, uh, trusting that God will will make this, uh, will reveal it, you know, will actually, um, will, will open people's eyes and ears to, to his voice and his creative hand in their lives, because otherwise we'll just continue to make it up. And, you know, I think that's why, you know, Nick, I know y'all at your church, uh, and rightly so are, um, you know, getting this type of teaching in front of the youngest kids as possible. And I think that's to be commended and we're, we're doing likewise here. I don't think there's a lot of thought being put into into the question even and, and, uh, especially the, the younger you know 18 year olds 19 year olds 20 year olds it, these things are presented to them as givens you know <laughs> it, it, the given is you look within and find out who you are and then live your live your truth <laughs> that's that's not even that's not even some that's not a new idea right that's not presented as a as a one way one aspect of life you could possibly pursue that is it. That is the way things are. Um, and so Christianity, the, the Christian understanding of identity is Martian. It, it, it doesn't, it strikes people as so alien and so strange because of the way our culture so quickly has, has shifted. Yeah, because fundamentally, it's a it's a rejection of any um, sort of sense of personal responsibility. I mean, this was you know Luther was famous for saying that that to become responsible for yourself is almost um, could almost be a, a euphemism for becoming a Christian because once you actually like Peter before Jesus, like come to grips with your actual complicity in the things done and left undone in the world, you look for a savior, right? And so I think a lot of this identity talk, when it comes from you know personal f- fulfillment. Um, ends up being a lot of blaming other people for your, um, well, what's wrong with you? You know, you're sad, hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. Well, it's not my fault. It must be yours, Mm -hmm. you know, and it must start with my parents. And then it starts with, you know, my upbringing, my church, my schools, my friends, all of these things become, become means of sort of horizontally absolving us of the fundamental question that is eating away at us, which is that, that we, we feel responsible. We, we have guilt, fear, and shame as a responsible person would before a, as of the, in the unpreached sense, the unknown God. And we, you know, when church is presented as a way to, to first and foremost, um, alleviate all that without the cross or without some, you know, actual gospel proclamation, well, then, um, then the church can easily be taken or left, um, you know, for yet another attempt to, to create my own identity. I mean, the, the, right. uh, the German theologian Oswald Bayer used the Greek, you know, autopoiesis, self-creation. And he says, this is the, this is actually the slavery of sin is that we are destined like Sisyphus to push our identity rock up the hill um, every day, you know, be a tweeter, uh, tweeter, Twitter, uh, Facebook. <laughs> Get off my lawn. Uh, that's right. Them <laughs> tweets. Um, and uh, and we're 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 that is actual living hell. Is that to 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 be thrown into the world? You know, the um, uh, Gavuf and uh, as Heidegger put it, you know, we're we're thrown into um, into existence, and we're forced to 
to hew some meaning out of this this meaningless world for ourselves. Well, that's a uh, well Sisyphean task, but it's also uh, that's the slavery and 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 living death of a life of sin, you know. And so we're calling people out of that life. Uh, by God's grace, uh, through preaching, you know, the, the foolishness of what we preach, but it, it actually ends up becoming the foundation for, for that redeemed life that we were talking about before, where all of a sudden, you know, there's a, there's a purpose and a reason and a gifting to being a man or a woman or a son or a daughter or a husband or a wife or a child or, or, or a friend for that matter, or for a worker, you know, I mean, to, to, to actually enjoy the goods of life from God um, are, re- require a reconciliation to him. But once that is accomplished, well, then the, the gifts that he has given us become no longer accusatory, but actually uh, vehicles for our own, our own um, joy. And so, you know, so the concept of the, you know, the concept of work, I use this analogy a lot, is that, is that life without, without the gospel is like um, uh, snow chains, which I had no experience with um, when I first put them on a car. And so I put them on the Matt car. Matt does. Matt does, that's right. <laughs> and I hope to never have to use them again. But I put these snow chains on the car. And if you've ever done it, you realize that I didn't know that there was a, there's a locking mechanism that actually keeps them tight to the wheel. Well, I just drove off without this locking mechanism and ripped off the back of the bumper of my car because the chains <laughs> just started slapping through the back of the car. And I use that analogy often is to say the good things of life that are actually constitutive of our identity, you know, again, our maleness, our femaleness, our, our, our sonship, our daughtership, our, our friend realities, our, our, our job, our work, our play, all of these things without the gospel become things that accuse us because they promise us life, but they, as the law, bring death, as Paul writes in Romans 7. When uh, the gospel then reconciles us to God, that's the locking mechanism that actually turns all of these things that otherwise vex us and kill us um, into gifts. So, you know, I feel for these people. I mean, I, Nick and I talk about all the time that the, when I was um, midway into my ministry and started having children among other people that were having children and saw the, the sort of despair that comes with uh, an unbelieving father who has, you know, three more mouths to feed than he wants, or he didn't understand why he has them or, you know, uh, that's a, that's a quite particular despair. And it's one that I'm spending my life hoping to alleviate because i want to say you know i don't like i don't like my job someday you know and i don't expect you to either but the joy for like jesus for the joy set before him he endured the cross well for the joy set before you you endure that nine to five work day because that's the amazing gift that god has given back to you by redeeming the world that he has created good for you and that's what you lose when you create your own world because it becomes just a vehicle for your own your own worship as opposed to sacrifice for the sake of others. And if you create your own world, there's no one to turn to for salvation other than yourself. And you are no savior. My my son, you can try. Well, that's what people do. That's what Twitter is all about. Twitter. I figured it out. Subtweeting is basically um, sort of uh, the secular uh, attempts at confession and absolution. You know, (laughs) can you believe someone said this to me and please tell me that I'm not wrong. That's what essentially is underlying all of these tweets, you know, so-and-so was so mean because I said this, aren't I right? Please tell me. And there's a huge market for absolution. It turns out it's just that it's all fake. It's all, none of it actually works. It's like, um, you know, so I think you can keep trying. 
You can see the, the pervasive aspect of this idea of, of uh, self-definition, um, not only in the way that we've been talking about, we've been talking about where you look within, you find out who you are, you live according to that, but also in, our, in the, uh, the various identity politics kind of ideas. So, for example, what defines what a white person is or a black person is? And, uh, you know, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, we'd say, okay, well, the color of skin. Well, not anymore. Now it's what ideology do you hold? Do you, <laughs> because, if, because if you're a black person who holds to conservative ideology, then you are not black, right? You, 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 then your identity is white, according to at least those who are exactly. pressing the, right. And so, and so whiteness and blackness now are, are, even those aren't objectively given to you or, or whatever your race might be, are not object, it's not objectively given to you or sex. It's not objectively given to you at birth. It's something that you have by virtue of whatever philosophies or, or ideology you hold. So it's untethering even, even our, our, uh, the skin, our skin from, yeah. from, from reality, from objective truth. Well, and I think there's a certain, it, it, interestingly enough for me, as you were talking about it, I was thinking there's, there's a certain uh, biblical truth to, um, to sort of detaching, at the very least, a constitutive identity marker to the color of your skin, because the Bible doesn't speak of, of quote-unquote races. I mean, that was a very Darwinian, um, you know, it was the height of science in the 1930s, 40s, I mean, 1830s, 40s, and 50s to talk about races, you know, phenotypes and all of these supposedly heights of, of um, science that ultimately became part of the eugenics movement were all totally unbiblical and totally have no place in, in, um, in Christian discussions of, of individual people. Because, you know, I think Gerald McDermott pointed out in a wonderful article in First Things that the Bible only knows of, of nations, you know, ethnos, but it doesn't speak of race, you know, and it has two races. If, if there's any race in the Bible we've talked about, it's, it's one in Adam and one in Christ, you know, and so that, that's, that has a lot of variations on melatonin or melanin, excuse me, um, <laughs> is a good old uh, uh, DC talk used to sing, right? right? Um, but, uh, but so I think, you know, even, even getting down to the, the base level of, of that conversation, bringing it back to the Bible, like, what does the Bible say right. about races, you know? Well, it says that there's, like I said, one in Adam and one in Christ. And so we as ministers are, that's our job. We're, we're, we're heralding to the world that um, there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, but all are one in Christ. And yet when you are one in Christ, then those various relational distinctions um, are fleshed out literally in, in, in and through your life. And so it doesn't do away with some of the, the distinctions amongst people, but it relativizes them in light of their shared confession of Christ, which is in fact, our brotherhood and sisterhood of man. You know I mean? What, what do we pray in our prayer book? We've made of one blood, all peoples of the earth, like that prayer alone, which is what quoting acts. What is that? 17. I forget exactly where it is, but it's a quotation directly from scripture that, um, that undercuts all um, sort of quote unquote racial ideas uh, within the, within the church, because it says we're, we are all creatures of God in need of redemption and equally worthy once redeemed of uh, full membership in the body of Christ. I mean, this is what, this is what we say. And so, you know, that's why all of this has to be pushed back upon. It doesn't mean that, that in every case, the people that are holding to these worldly ideologies are evil or even, even ill and ill willed, you know, but it does need, we of all people need to be able to, 
to see what the roots of it are as clearly as possible and help equip our people to navigate and, um, and articulate where the differences between a Christian worldview and a non-Christian one are um, for the sake of their own ability to stand firm, their own ability to, to withstand the, the wind and waves of life. I mean, this is part of the equipping uh, that the church has been charged with in this generation that perhaps, like you said before, your grandfather may have never considered having to even think about well, that's, um, that was then and this is now. You know? and so this is what, what we're doing. And the idea that we have to, we have to go even further back before, you know, to, to what it means to be a man or a woman as an ontological reality is almost hard to, or to, to say uh, without, without sort of wondering what's gone wrong with the world. But there we go. That's what we have to say. It's worth acknowledging that to a sinful human ear, you don't get to define yourself sounds like bad news, but heard by an acknowledged sinner, you don't have to define yourself is wonderful, freeing and comforting news. (laughs) Thank God that I don't have to leave this microphone right now and go out and define myself in front of my children. I, I am who God made me. And because of a definition from outside myself, as we said before, that means that a savior can come from outside myself to the, the same Lord who defines me can save me. Amen. And I, and I have to think that we will see, um, I mean, I pray for a revival every morning or every, every time I think of it, um, which is without ceasing. Um, And so (laughs) I, but I do, I do hope that, as Rodney Stark pointed out in his book, The Triumph of Christianity, that that there was a, a weariness to the sort of middle, upper middle class Roman um, sort of elite uh, that Marx totally, um, you know, uh, ignored in his in his famous quip, you know, that religion was the opiate of the masses. It's like, well, it wasn't all the masses because they had to have people that actually had houses large enough for those little house churches to meet. You know, if someone paid the someone paid the minister, but um, but. But Ronnie Stark points out that there is no, there was no, uh, what Marx failed to, to appreciate was the, the sort of misery of the uh, aimlessly affluent, right? And so there's a, there's a decadence to our culture right now that is unknown in many parts of the world even still. You know, the idea that a man um, could even have a question about whether or not he had to work, you know, or had to um, fulfill some sort of masculine identity. Um, you know, go talk to Bishop Campeche up in northern Kenya, you know, about when he gets his his churches bringing him their offerings and, and literally like goats and chickens as part of the offering. You know, those men don't have the luxury, the decadent luxury of wondering you know, how this is going to work out. And so we have a, we have an exhaustive decadent piety as what Gerhard Ferdy late would have said that I hope is going to lead people to, to seek for a savior, because like you said, Nick, it's incredibly exhausting to have to recreate your, yourself every day on Twitter, um, you know, keep your followers up. And then of course, without any mercy, as we've seen, you know, with the cancel culture, I mean, the moment you step out of line, you're dead, you know, you're erased and you're gone. Well, 
you know, this is the church where we, we welcome the race, the dead and the gone, you know, we welcome the, the sinner, the, the, the exhausted. And we, I'm hoping that, uh, you know, it won't be at the end of, of people's lives. They will realize this, but there will be a, a, a resurgence of people who have been, um, who have found the, 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 the lack of absolution in the world will terrifying and they will go and search for a savior. And that's what, that's what we're offering. That's what we're offering. I mean, uh, uh, bring to me your burdens and lay them down, says Jesus. You know, well, it's quite a thing to carry your own, your own meaning around with you. And thankfully, we don't have to do that. I thought it was really interesting. They were talking about how, you know, if, if, if you, it's a, it's a great thing that you don't have to define yourself. And that's, that, but, you're, but you're also right that you wouldn't necessarily know but that's a great thing until you first had some kind of confrontation with the gospel because you know you know paul looking within wouldn't necessarily necessarily say oh what a wretched man am i <laughs> until right. until yeah. until until after he's heard the gospel after he's really confronted himself with the law in fact as seen, he says in philippians 3 yeah. he's, he's the best he's got all the yeah. qualifications his yeah, identity right. is higher than anybody's <laughs> Right. Well, yeah, and look how and look how look how Luke totally did. interrupting Matt now. <laughs> Sorry, that's good. Yeah, keep going. <laughs> no, you go. <laughs> I, I was just saying, yeah. Once he sees the law, for its for all of its power and weight, that's what that's what the Pharisees. That's what the problem with the Pharisees was. It was it wasn't that they were too light in the law. It was that they they tried to escape the law by by glazing over the law with their traditions. Which yeah, they were casual. Right, exactly. So, but once the law was was revealed in its fullness and Paul had to deal face-to-face uh, or, or self-to-self with his real desires, that's when, oh, thank God, someone else is going to save me from this body of death because mm-hmm. Christ is, because I because otherwise I'm doomed. But but, but you're not going to see it, you're right. You, you, he, he was busy. He was, he was busy blamelessly, bla- blamelessly, blamelessing himself. Um, yes. Yeah, absorbing right, right right yeah well and you, you can see how lucrative non-law sort of gospel proclamation good news um is in the world through you know the various self-help programs or uh the latest fad you know like the enneagram's gonna um save your life and you know describe all of your anxieties and give you a function or the myers-briggs or this this guru or this new practice or the mindfulness you mean you just go down the list and again that's not necessarily a judgment on any of those uh, exhaustively i mean there's there's uh, probably places for our, for for discussion about all those things, but but when they are seen as vehicles that are going to finally do the trick, finally answer you know all of your your internal uh, worries and anxieties, well then they're going to ultimately uh, fail you. And this is the you know the Galatian heresy. This is the 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 tragedy of the sinful life that we are charged with um, with exposing and and then proclaiming. A, a, you know, come and come and see a more beautiful way and. You know, it's by God's mercy and in His providence and wisdom that that some sermons open the ears of some people at some times and some others, but but that won't stop us from doing it. You know, and and it certainly shouldn't stop parents from taking comfort in their, their baptize their children and raising them in the fear and admonition of the Lord and having confidence that His promise will will hold them fast as they've held you fast. And that's what we're. That's what, you know, I guess to a certain, a certain generation in the church lost that confidence, or at least, you know, if, if, if the uh, polls are right about how many people in this next generation are not churched or not are leaving the church, well, then 
you know, that leaves a lot of work for us to do, <laughs> but, but it, it won't change the fundamental message and it won't change the fundamental hope that, it, that exists, as you said, Nick, in knowing that you need a savior and you're not him. When the goat with which you are doing yoga turns around and bites, <laughs> bites you, you, the That's church right. will be there. That's right. When you uh, when you are taking enzymes in order to uh, become a goat, <laughs> complete your transition into a goat, and you forget to take them, and that grass just doesn't go down the right way. Well, you have a savior, uh, dear goat man. Um, just Google it. <laughs> it really is sad though, because you know, I, with we've talked to earlier in this podcast about the Twitter storm, its ongoing way, and I remember I had, I had one exchange early in the, in the Twitter storm with the guy. He says, "You know, you're, you're a Pharisee." Yeah. You're, you're a Pharisee. And I, I said, okay, he what, was what, wrong, Matt. You're not a Pharisee. I'm not a Pharisee. <laughs> I'm not a Pharisee. Thank you for the absolution. You're welcome. <laughs> I'm crossing. You can see this. So, so no, but, but, uh, so I, I tried to point out to him. I don't think you, I ultimately had to block him because he, I think he was just a troll, but, um, but the, 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 the people who are most like the Pharisees, in this era are those who are creating extra biblical law and implying applying them to others and justifying themselves by those same laws so uh, a, a woman who writes a book and grounded in in the idea that whiteness is inherently wicked <laughs> there, there, there's some kind of there's some kind of inherent oppressive viewpoint that people raised in America from who are white from you know 1950 on necessarily have and therefore are guilty of and only those who distance themselves from that are guiltless that's this that's the pharisaic move right there because you're you're creating this new morality this new virtue you're you're building it up and then you're inviting people to either identify themselves with it and be saved or, or identify themselves as the, the the people of light, the enlightened ones who are um, who are who are who are not part of the whiteness systemic whiteness. What are you an institution of the of the nation, or 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 not? And they're the bad guys. So so you, that that's that is a quintessential Pharisaic move. And so the 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 the, the Pharisee is still alive and kicking. It's just not where most people would see would would, I, would identify it. That's a really good point. I mean, that's why Jesus, you know, his excoriation of them had to do with tying millstones around you know people's necks and and giving them burdens that were too heavy to bear because they were they were had established an entire alternative way of being righteous that was not um, you know that that he was going to expose, or which he did, and so. I think that's really good insight, Matt. And I think it's, you know, this is why we preach. I mean, this is why I, I encourage my congregation to talk to their friends about Jesus and the church, because there is only one way that faith comes, which is by hearing, and it doesn't have to come through the official mouth of a ordained minister. It can come, you know, and often it doesn't. It comes through your grandparents or your friend or your or your coworker even. And it's all in service, not of contempt or scorn for unbelievers, but to to share with them something of the freedom and the um, the joy that you found. I mean, you know, I often go to, I tell people in Galatians, you know, one of the most confusing verses for people who just sort of have a um, sort of nominal Christian faith is when, pe- when Paul says, for freedom, Christ has set you free. You know, do not submit once again to this yoke of slavery, right? 
because most of the understanding they have is through some pharisaical version of of church which has simply made their lives harder or more difficult and their identity is um is just fine thank you very much you know i don't need to add all these additional burdens to myself but when they actually get confronted with the freedom that comes from the gospel well, then that's an entirely different thing. And that verse becomes one of the most beautiful in the book. I mean, that book Ernst Kazemann wrote, remember, Jesus means freedom, right? I mean, that's just an almost unintelligible for many people who were brought up nominally in the church. And yet that is, in fact, the truth. And that's the freedom to to lay down your life and and have him pick it up for you. You know, this is that I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the one who gave himself for me. Well, that faith looks like being confident that that he knew what a man and a woman were you know he knows he knows what a child is what a son a daughter a husband a father a mother of a friend is and we can trust him when he when he lays out these guidelines and that's just a that's a message that that will will change the life of the person which then will change their neighbor you know as they love their neighbor as themselves and most people's neighbors eventually become some form of romantic partner which then becomes some sort of child which then becomes some sort of worker situation which then eventually changes changes the world so i um you know this is this is what we have to offer we have to offer an entirely an entirely alternative way of 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 addressing the question of who am i um, because we are fundamentally creatures of God, redeemed by His Son, and incorporated and grafted as heirs of His um, into His family, and that's an entirely different identity than than the world has to offer. Okay, thank you for that. Well, that's going to be all the time that we have this week. Thank you, as always, for listening. If you'd like to keep the conversation going, you can be in touch with us. You can rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Send us an email at mailbag at standfirminfaith.com or join the Anglicans for the Gospel Facebook group. Thanks, as always, to Matt Kennedy and to J.D. Koch. I'm Nick Lannon, and Lord willing, we'll be back next week. Until then, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we'll be standing firm.